Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, your Sunday morning news hour. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I am here with my co-hosts, Emily, Sarah, Matt, and our special guests, Abby Eman and Wiley Stocklow. How's everybody doing? This Kobo is doing fine. <laughs> doing good. Um, doing it's great. Wiley Stecklow for those keeping score at home. Stecklow, yes. Stecklow, I'm sorry about that. No problem. Um, so we are recording in a new platform this week, and we have a great show for you. Uh, we're, today we're going to be talking about the NRA lawsuit, uh, ending asylum, a little bit about what's going on in Beirut, and pretty much more. So Emily, why don't you kick it off with our interview with our special guests? I would be happy to. Um, Yes. So Abby Eman and Wiley Stecklow, um, thank you again for joining us today. So Abby, you are the owner of Lucky Bar in the East Village. Um, And would you provide us a little bit more background on yourself um, and what it's been like operating a bar during the pandemic? Well, we opened Lucky about four years ago, and um, I was pretty excited to be entering summer 2020 uh, and having it be the best summer ever, and that was obviously sidelined. Um, when they were allowing bars to be open for to-go drinks, I opted to not do that because of the physical layout of the bar. It just didn't make sense for me, and it didn't seem like a way to actually make money. Um, however, when I found out that there was a chance that I was going to be able to be open for the outdoor seating, because um, Lucky has a big backyard, I scrambled and was open for three days during the to-go segment of time just to get my chops back to you know warm up the cash register and get the taps flowing again, you know, in anticipation of being able to be open with people seated out back. Um, as soon as people were able to come in and order drinks, it it was extremely stressful. It's been extremely stressful. If you've read any accounts by anyone in the service industry about what it's been like, you know, it used to be um, kind of fun and lighthearted, and now it has basically become death-defying. You know, going to work, you could, you know, and anything could could cause us to, you know, catch this virus. So obviously. Um, since my uh, bar is a tiny little spot and it's really just mostly local and it's a neighborhood bar, um, I know about 95% of my clientele. So the stress on me was to make sure I wasn't killing my friends. Um, and that was kind of wearing, you know. Um, and then on top of all that, obviously, were all the usual um, Department of Health things. And there were more of them because of COVID and, um, you know, at least bars, I think bartenders especially are probably, you know, up, not quite up there with, with surgeons and tattoo artists, but our hands are in bleach and sanitizing solution all day. So I consider us to be pretty safe. Um, so that was what was making me feel like it wasn't quite so dangerous, but, um, you know, we were doing okay. I was at about 50% business by the end of July and was kind of excited for the next few months. Mm-hmm. Mm. Did you, how, how does your bar operate? Do you serve food? Um, by law, I have to offer food. Um, and I have a microwave and you can order hot pockets or um, cup of noodles. Yeah, because 
that was the thing I was confused about. It's like, does everyone have to order food to well, get well, any that, alcohol? That is, that is that is what I'm fighting. Um, yeah, the laws on the books are that all bars and you know anybody with a liquor license is required to offer food, and I was doing that. Um, but I mean, first of all, given the fact that I've got hot pockets and and hot cup soup, whatever. I mean, it's a hundred degrees out. You don't want to be ordering that but the the executive order that Cuomo came up with on the 16th of July was that not that we had to offer food but that we had to require we were required to to have our customers order food with each you know if you came up and ordered a drink I couldn't give you a beer without you also ordering food Mm -hmm. and not just bag of chips right it had to be quote substantial based on what the mandate talking about the cuomo chips (laughs) yeah cuomo chips fell by the wayside in fact you know initially when everyone was freaking out about this you know everyone came up with these ridiculous menus the the one the one upstate outside of buffalo the beginning of each of their offerings was a letter and it was f and then u and then c and you know it was (laughs) <laughs> and they were doing it to to you know make him mad and that they succeeded he shut them down um, wow but you know it wasn't a lot of people were like oh how about a spoonful of macaroni and cheese or nine goldfish or a slab of you know bologna or whatever and and people were joking about it but it you know it became pretty serious pretty quickly and mm-hmm. even till today it's unclear what constitutes a meal like is a salad a meal well then why isn't a a plate of chicken wings a meal and Mm. uh, a plate of loaded nachos which i don't know about you guys but the loaded nachos i've eaten in my day could serve four people yeah i'm ordering that why isn't that a meal so we're all we're all stumbling in the dark here and um every place is solving it their own way and across the board i would say at least half aren't in compliance because we just don't have clear leadership on this yeah Hmm. Uh, that's that's wild that's so interesting and um and you started a petition um to fight back at that and it's called the seating not eating petition on change.org um i checked earlier today and it's we're recording on friday you had over 3500 signatures so far um will you talk a little bit about your petition well my feeling is and i mean i feel for Governor Cuomo, because, you know, yes, our numbers are down and they, they've been down steadily and it's, we've been doing really well and we want to keep it that way. And there's been a lot of egregious behavior and flouting of the social distancing rules, um, like all those bars in Queens and some of them on St. Mark's and in Hell's Kitchen. And in every instance where you see these bars who have gotten into trouble, it's been giant crowds of people. And that's what's dangerous. And so my feeling was, you know, when he had came up with this executive order, where we forcing people to eat, I, I thought, well, why does ordering food keep me safe from the virus? And when what actually might keep me safe from the virus is making sure that all my customers are seated, which I've been doing since the beginning of being open, you know, I have three picnic tables in my backyard that seat six people each, and I have a swing that seats two. And you can't be out there standing up because I don't want you looming over 
the table of strangers and they don't want you there either. And if you saw the pictures at the White Horse Tavern, for instance, where, you know, they got 30 violations, um, they would have a six or four seat high top and then those four to six people would have four to six or 12 of their friends standing around the table. And if people are standing, that's what leads to the crowding. And that's to me is what leads to it being dangerous, especially mm -hmm. if people aren't wearing masks. And, you know, you have to be in my yard, sit, sitting on your butt, drinking your beer. And, and until you get to that table where you're sitting and drinking your beer, you have to have a mask on. And, it just didn't make any sense to me science-wise or health-wise to require people to order food because, you know, if anything, ordering the food might expose people to more germs because if you've, you know, put your fingers in your mouth eating French fries and then reach for more French fries and I eat some of the French fries and there's more germs, or if the service people are having to bus more garbage that has more germs on it, it just, none of it made any sense to me. And in order to save my sanity in, in this, these very insane times, I just couldn't sit by and, and let this happen. I'm like, this isn't safe. It's not smart. What would be smart is making us all make people sit down because that will be keeping people safer. Yeah, it's, it's so great. On, on your petition, you wrote, seating, not eating is far more, is a far more elegant solution. What people consume on our premises isn't the problem. How they consume does and I believe they should be seated. Um, and you point out a really good point. Like the point is is uh, isn't the the things that you're eating, but but the style. How come? And maybe this is a question for Wiley. Is there a legal reason why there's this kind of roundabout justification around um, around the decision saying making it about food instead of making it about space, having space being the determining factor of how people can uh, go out during these times? Well, I'd say that Governor Cuomo hasn't really identified the rationale behind this uh, executive order. And, and it's not, I think, for a reason other than the man is doing so many things right now trying to protect his constituents, protect the citizens and the residents of New York State that I don't think he can put out a memo or an explanation for everything. But what Abby's done is what citizens are supposed to do. It's what the United States Constitution guarantees, right? In the very First Amendment, it gives you the right to petition your government for a redress of grievances. So that's exactly what Abby did. She started a petition to, to petition the government to say, hey, there's a problem with your executive order. The idea that people have to order substantial food does nothing to protect their health. What, what will protect their health is if we have this seating, not eating. And what's implicit in that and, and shouldn't be lost in translation is it's all about outdoor seating, not about indoor seating. And so what Abby wants to have the government understand is that if I am able to put people in the seats that I have in my backyard, then they will be socially distant from each other and they'll be able to be safely there and have their drinks. Um, I don't see a rationale for the health that involves food other than the concept that if people are eating, they won't get as intoxicated and therefore they won't forget about so being socially distant, which I think takes away a lot of responsibility from the bar and, and really mixes and matches rationale. So it, it's really disconcerting as a citizen to see 
that when somebody is exercising free speech rights, that the government then retaliates against the business person for doing so. And I think that's what we're seeing, because if you go walk around the streets of New York, of which we all do now at, at, at random times, and we're seeing a lot of bars and restaurants open and everyone's sitting outside, I see people having drinks all the time without food on the table. And they're not enforcing this against everybody. They're enforcing this against Abby, which she spoke up. Because she not only started this petition, but she also got media attention. Right? She got uh, written up in the Daily News and in Eater and got interviewed on 1010 Wins Radio and other places. And I think that it caught the administration's attention. And the easiest thing for them to do, since she was readily admitting that the idea of serving substantial food was not something she could really do and stay in business and protect employees and protect customers, they went right to her. They avoided any other bar in the area. They didn't do this to everybody. They didn't look at any other issues in her bar but solely looked at whether or not she was serving food. And she was offering food but wasn't requiring it. And therefore, they shut her down. And I think that this gives rise to various claims that we can bring and that we intend on bringing to you know, protect not only her rights, but the rights of all citizens to be able to stand up, have free speech, be able to push back against the government when the government has very laudable goals. Protecting the citizens is a very laudable goal. But to do it in a way that harms a small business person and not allow them to petition the government for the redress of grievances is a real problem, and it's a constitutional violation. And I look forward to hearing from the, the governor's office about why they did this and let them file their legal papers to explain it to us. That's was an incredible speech. <laughs> I, I was so glad you're here. Absolutely. Uh, both of you. Yeah, I was um, just gonna I was can I just jump in for a second? Um of course. I was just gonna say um that part about them not enforcing it in certain places and uh, sort of picking on you because you did ask for clarification. I think that is huge. I was just up in Hudson two weeks ago. Um, and the first place I went to, they didn't say anything. The second place I went to, they kind of lightly mentioned it. And my friend and I heard it and we were just kind of like, well, we, we didn't want to order anything. And then we're like, okay, they mentioned that we needed to order. And we suggested French fries. They're like, oh, we don't have those anymore. And I was like, okay, we'll take the check. And then they gave us the check. So it's like, it's so up and down um, who's doing what. But I agree with you that I feel like we're more at risk if we have to go into these places and order food. Everybody involved is more at risk than just sitting down, having a, a drink or a cocktail and being on your merry way. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I have to tell you, I'm like, I'm just as scared as anyone else of catching this. And just as scared as any other owner of killing my clientele. So I, you know, I'm not being obstinate just, you know, to piss everyone off. I just don't see that this ruling rule has anything to do with safety. And I, I'm all about being safe and I've been incredibly safe. And, um, I should also probably update you guys on the fact, and I don't even think I've told Wiley this yet, but, um, there was a an update to the story on Eater yesterday. The same woman that I spoke to a few days ago, I emailed her and said, just to let you know, they've taken away my liquor license. And so the, the article that she ran yesterday told the whole updated story. And then last night, the SLA visited all of my neighbors 
who I had said weren't visited, you know, like what the selective um, enforcement that Wiley and I are talking about, they're trying to backpedal and remedy that by running around now after the fact and and harassing all my neighbors now. So the law of unintended consequences is now I'm, I've not only put my business in jeopardy, I've now put all my neighbors' businesses in jeopardy, which is extremely upsetting. I mean, they, they visited a few of my neighbors and they all passed with flying colors, which is wonderful. And I'm not going to name names and specify what they're serving, but they're all solving this in completely different ways. Some of which I, you know, have question with. And um, I just feel bad that they were harassed because of my being vocal. I can't believe it. I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your license. Did they hit you with one of those $10,000 fines or anything? Even I don't know yet. Um, Can I speak uh, to that for a second, Abby? Yeah. So one of the real problems we're seeing is that the state liquor authority not only gave her a summary suspension, but then you're supposed to have a, a hearing. You can either choose a hearing or a settlement. And the settlement is what you're talking about with those $10,000 fines. The hearing you're supposed to get within seven days, but the SLA is now saying, due to the pandemic, we're not going to do those hearings. We don't know when we will. So that's what we call you know, a due process violation. They're depriving her of her right, her, her license, and they're doing it without due process of law. They're not giving her the ability of having the hearing. So there are multiple claims that Abby has that we will hopefully be bringing to a federal court near you very soon. And so even if the selective, even if they're able to cure the selective enforcement by being able to say, aha, well, we went around to these 17 other local East Village bars and we inspected them within 48 hours of the suspension, there are still other problems that the government has with how they've treated Abby and Lucky Bar. And I'm really hopeful we'll be able to get into court and get a remedy so that she can save her business. I mean, this is a terrible economic time and a terrible health time for so many people it's really outrageous the state liquor authority is utilizing this moment to tell people, we know you're having a hard time staying afloat. Pay us $10,000 or we'll give you another opportunity to, to do so. So, And was it just the three infractions? Is that whole three strikes or close? Is that actually in practice? Uh, no, I, I, I have only had one strike. Oh, my God. I mean, if they had walked in and said, you're not wearing a mask, there's 300 people in your yard crowding the yard and you aren't serving food or forcing them to eat food, then that I could have maybe bought that as three strikes. But when I, when Cuomo, I mean, I watch him religiously because I believe in him. And when I watch him in his press conferences, he said, we're going to give bars three strikes and then you're out. And so I thought I'm going to, I'm going to fight this and not offer, you know, not force you to have any food at all and get my first strike. And then I'm, I was planning on capitulating and offering a Rain's sandwich in, you know, in response, but I was not given that opportunity. And, and just to, to clarify, yeah. Abby and her staff do wear masks. He was given a, an example there. Yeah, she yeah, yeah. So my totally. She doesn't have 300 people in her backyard and they wear masks and they take this, the protections that are necessary here very seriously. Yeah. And I mean, like Whitehorse Tavern had 30 violations. Yeah. I've had one. One. That's crazy. Has there been any 
like direct response from the governor's office or has it just been this like behind the scenes state liquor authority sort of situation? Oh, I haven't heard from the governor. No. I mean, our hope was that we would hit a certain number in the petition. And anybody who's listening to this, I urge you to go to change.org and search for the seating, not eating petition and sign it and share it on social media. Because the goal was to get, you know, a critical mass of signatures or names on that petition and then bring it to the governor in the most amicable, friendly way to his administration and say, hey, we'd like to talk to you about maybe using this and, and creating an effective modification to this particular executive order. And yeah. instead, they, they went ahead and closed her down. So now we'll have to do it in court. But the more people that sign off on it and, and say they understand this is a difficult time and everybody needs to be very concerned health-wise. I mean, give the governor credit. He helped us flatten the curve. And, and New York and the tri-state area are doing much better than we were doing in April. And we're doing much better than a lot of other states in this country right now. And so we're happy that we have local leadership that takes this seriously, wears masks and pushes that on everybody and makes sure that we're all wearing masks and being socially distant. But I think that what we need to see is, you know, intelligent use of these rules and making sure everyone can stay safe but at the same time, giving people the opportunity to earn a living, to stay afloat, to be able to earn money so they can pay their rent and they, we can try and get back, you know, afloat economically as well as staying on top of it in a health-wise situation. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just very disappointing that, you know, the government, while talking out of one side of their mouth is saying, we're, we're here for you, small businesses. They're, instead of helping us, they are actively working against us. And, uh, you know, if they shut me down, I made enough money to pay $1,000 in sales tax for July. You know how much sales tax they're going to get out of me for August? Zero dollars. And who, who does that help? You know, if I go back on unemployment, who does that help? I don't understand. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I know that we're in this crazy circumstance in this world right now where nothing's making sense. But at the very, very least, our government should be supporting us in being at work if that's what we want to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Abby and Wiley, for joining us today. Um, does anyone, Abby, Wiley, any of the hosts, any last thoughts before we switch to a music break? I was just going to say thank you for standing up and standing out, Abby. I think it's um, powerful to hear your story and share your story. I'll definitely make sure we share the information about your petition on our Facebook page. Um, but yeah, thanks for fighting the good fight. And Wiley, thank you so much for explaining it to us um, from that standpoint. I think a lot of times people just kind of follow rules that they're given on the on the idiot box and they don't really break things down, what they really mean and how they affect us. Yeah. So I think you definitely uncovered that for us today. And I appreciate that. You guys are very welcome. I'm hopeful that it wasn't too granular in nature and that it was easily understandable. <laughs> no, it was awesome. <laughs> you were granular and I was uh, mashed potatoes. <laughs> well, <laughs> as long as you serve those, we'll be in good shape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love thank it. Thank you. All right, guys. All right, thank, thank you. you. Awesome. So we are up to our first music break today. Our first song is My Future by Billie Eilish. We'll be right back. I know supposedly I'm lonely now. No, I'm supposed to be unhappy without someone. 
welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next segment that we have up is Sarah with our first national news story. Hi, everyone. Um, I am excited to present this story because it connects back to what Wiley was just talking about in the interview, uh, which is due process, but it's on a much larger scale. So I'm talking to about the push to end asylum that the Trump administration has been making. I want to say behind the scenes, but I mean, it's not really been behind the scenes, just the attention has been diverted to COVID. So while we've all been focused on COVID, uh, the Trump administration has been making changes to end asylum in the U.S. So NPR's immigration expert, uh, Joel Rose, contends that the administration claims that the asylum seekers at the southern border are not like refugees fleeing persecution as migrants were in World War II, which is where the asylum law has its roots. Instead, they've been arguing that these migrants are trying to escape poverty in Central America, which is not a, quote, credible fear. So Trump says that our system is full. We're not taking them anymore. Can't do it. The border is closed to asylum seekers now, and they are justifying this as protecting public health due to the epidemic. Thousands of migrants have been turned away since March and the start of the COVID crisis. Border Patrol has carried out approximately 70,000 Title 32 expulsions, which is a federal law that was created in the 1890s to stop boats from entering U.S. harbors if they came from places hit by smallpox. According to the ACLU, the administration, the Trump administration, has built a, quote, shadow immigration system that bypasses all of the protections Congress has painstakingly enacted for asylum seekers and children over the past 40 years. Immigration advocates have tried to challenge decisions to put children in hotels, I'm sure everyone has seen the photos, um, up near the border before moving them back to their home countries. But every time a lawsuit on behalf of an unaccompanied child is filed, the administration has handed the child back to HHS, nulling the legal process. These children are legally supposed to be put in a shelter and then released to a sponsor or relative in the U.S., regardless of COVID. So... Um, back in June, I remember Jasmine reported on a related story. Uh, she talked about the case of the Department of Homeland Security against an asylum seeker from Sri Lanka who is caught by Border Patrol crossing the southern border. Uh, a quick recap, his claim for asylum was rejected. An initial court ruled that it was unconstitutional for him to be deported without seeing a judge, but latest decisions have stripped due process. So we talked about Back then, we talked about the credible fear interview and how basically Customs and Border Patrol, uh, often not trained asylum officers, are being allowed to decide on asylum seekers' deportation without the chance for the seeker to contest this decision before a court. So that's what I mean when I am talking about the larger scale of due process. Um, so essentially, they they are supposed to be allowed to contest the decision before a court, but currently it's not happening. So according to the National Immigrant Justice Center, the Department of Homeland Security and the Executive Office for Immigration Review issued a proposed rule on July 9th designed to exclude asylum seekers who flee from or travel through a country where infectious or highly contagious diseases are prevalent or exhibit symptoms, quote, consistent with such disease or illness. This new rule would consider such asylum seekers a danger to the security of the U.S., this rule is reminiscent of the now definite border closure imposed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, um, in uh, prevention of decades of U.S. and international law. 
So because COVID is now a worldwide pandemic, this new rule allows for the creation of a loophole that Customs and Border Patrol agents deciding on exclusion of asylum seekers that will create legal room for discrimination in an already biased immigration system. So I, the, the main issue here is that the administration has already expressed its strong position in favor of reopening schools, the economy, etc., despite scientific advice saying it will lead to a surge in cases. So it seems contrary, and it seems that creating COVID, quote, safety border laws is sort of a Trojan, well, reverse Trojan horse of a rule created to keep out asylum seekers, particularly those at the southern border of the U.S., in a report from last year created by the U.S. Immigration Policy Center, it details that there is no need for such a role since over 91.9% of asylum seekers have family or close friends in the U.S. with whom they can shelter in place. With the proper policies, there should be a safe way to allow those seeking asylum to enter under due process. However, currently, U.S. officials are dropping asylum seekers quickly across the border with no explanation under this Title 32 excuse. And most are not even receiving the credible fear interview that we were talking about in June at all. So when we were ha- while we were having problems with this like kind of bogus credible fear interviewing, these people aren't even getting that. Physicians and health experts are saying that since commerce is flowing across the border, those people are just as likely as migrants to bring cases to the U.S. So it is clear that this is, as Joel Rose reported for NPR, a pretext to deny asylum. So yeah, it's getting very complicated, and that's sort of the update from when we had talked about it in June, Um, and I guess I just wanted to talk about it since we've been, I mean, so much else has been going on, and this is just still going on. Um, 70,000 expulsions is an incredible amount, and I'm sure there's more happening, so wondering what you all are thinking. Did you say... I'm sorry, may may I, um, you said originally, did you say there was an asylum law that had something to do with smallpox? Yeah, so basically, yeah, so asylum, they're they're sort of using this um, rule, the administration, the Trump administration is claiming that asylum seekers, um, oh wait, sorry, now I'm just confused about what I'm saying. So the original smallpox rule. Yeah, this, to keep this is the, the title out? thirty-two. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, yeah, so I, I had it reversed in my law. head. Yeah, it was it was a law created to stop boats from entering the harbor if they came from places hit by the smallpox. Um, so mm. it's, I mean, that makes sense. But it was <laughs> they're just using a rule from quite a long time ago to justify what's going on, but at the same time letting commerce flow across the border. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what stopped smallpox was uh, a vaccine, not uh, xenophobia. Yeah, right, right. Well, especially because we have more scientific evidence that that's not necessarily the way that we're going to cure COVID is by closing our borders. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, yeah, it's been crazy listening to, you know all the stuff from the Trump administration being like, we have to reopen, we have to reopen. Like, it doesn't matter. Like if you get, get it right. Like right. whatever economy is the most important thing. Well then at the same time, which is what we've been saying for so long, using it as an excuse to just carry forward um, with their, you know, xenophobic agenda right. um, without even, you know, like the, I like the irony there, like no one. <laughs> right. And it's also, like it's also plays really 
like on at, at face value, it seems like it makes sense, right? Like I think the administration's really good at fear mongering. Like if someone just came up to me in the street and was like, do you think people that are sick should be able to come into the US like super sick? They're going to kill your family members possibly. I would be like, no, of course not. Keep them out. But when you look at it in context of what that, what that would actually mean and if there was a safe process for them to be, you know, able to self-isolate, it really doesn't matter. Like this is just an all all a pretext and just all sort of a cover up for just getting rid of asylum um, for certain groups of people. So I think it's that's, pretty terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting. I I don't think I knew the history of asylum. You said it dates back to post World War II mm-hmm. um, stuff. Yeah, because I mean, there's I grew as as a Jewish American. I grew up. There's that story of the boat of Jewish refugees trying to get into the U.S. that was turned back and to their deaths in Europe during World War II. Um, and it's interesting. It's it's because people, it's still, that's still happening, right? Right. And it's happening on our borders and it's, they're just trying to find more excuses to allow that sort of thing to keep happening um, with all sorts of different groups of people that need help. Um, yeah, yeah. Only, God only crazy. knows what's going to happen with Beirut. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, Which I think, will, yeah. COVID, they got you. Got to choose a side. Are we gonna mm-hmm. be safe? Or are we gonna just randomly choose, pick and choose who gets to reopen, who gets to come in, who gets to do mm-hmm. their thing? It's crazy. It's wild. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Sarah. That was a great um, story. I have never actually known the history of asylum as well, but I was conscientious that they were. Uh, making changes to these laws just because we've been kind of following that uh, for a while now. All right. So next up, we have Matt with our next national news story. Take it away. Yes, uh, we do. I I dipped out for a second. Um, Hopefully that won't be too bad. Um, I guess. Yeah, we'll see. I think it'll be fine. Well, last time that happened, it may have. I think we did lose a file. I think I think I had all of them at the end, actually. Oh, okay. So yeah, all right, wonderful. I think yeah. Um, so we'll see. I mean, how could the world? How could the world go on without hearing my <laughs> little interjections on Sarah's work? <laughs> I know, and just the meta, yeah. or just the meta conversation of how we're actively recording this right now. Yes, but <laughs> um, okay. You know, people are into like hip tech things. You know. Uh, Charlie Kaufman just came out with a new movie. So like meta is still popular, I guess. Okay. So uh, here's a piece based off of reporting by Danny Hakim or Hakim with the New York times and Carol Leonig and Tom Hamburger. I think his name is Tom Hamburger uh, with the Washington post. Um, Okay. So let's picture Go on a little little journey for a moment. Uh, picture a bad guy from a heist movie, right? Uh, a wealthy, slimy bad guy that represents decadence and overindulgence. Someone that every viewer can see as the bad guy. You know, someone that we would love for like George Clooney and like Matt Damon and all those dudes to take down at the next Ocean's Eleven movie. Someone who's rich, despicable. Like someone who runs a nonprofit and uses the money to charter personal trips to the Bahamas. He buys a 108-foot yacht with the the organization's money 
to use for his own recreation. And what would an evil, rich villain name a yacht like that? Something sinister and eerie like illusions. He lavishes his inner circle with gifts from Neiman Marcus and runs up hotel bills for his family, all on the nonprofit's account. He goes behind the board's back and creates a $17 million post-employment golden parachute. He lies on his taxes. He awards his friends with consulting jobs that pay $30,000 a month. And of course, he's also a big game hunter and spends the nonprofit's money on a hunting trip in Africa. To make things worse, the nonprofit itself is a bad guy too. It doesn't do cancer research or build affordable housing. No, they get their money from arms dealing, a nonprofit that advocates the selling of guns. An arms dealing nonprofit. Wow. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Wayne LaPierre of the National Rifle Association, the NRA. And all of those details are real and part of a suit brought by New York's Attorney General Letitia James. But it's not just Mr. LaPierre. Many of the leadership of the NRA have been under scrutiny, most notably allegations of the misuse of the NRA's funds and cronyism. Wayne LaPierre's boat called Illusions. Well, a former chief finance officer named Woody Phillips He also got a yacht that NRA paid for, and he called it Grand Illusion, which is like, I wish I could be at that level where I have million-dollar inside jokes or whatever. It's a surreal story, and because of all the mind-bending contrast between how people perceive the NRA and what it really is, I think that makes it really surreal. You know, in some circles, the NRA is viewed as a patriotic, anti-tyranny, grassroots advocacy organization that despises the hard-soled, patent-leather politicians of the bureaucratically corrupt coastal elites in government. Yet, its leadership of the NRA seems to be that decadent political insider who are elite in the most superficial ways, buying boats, steeped in high finance, multiple vacations to the Caribbean, you know, private jets to yachts. It's a wild story, sensational, but is it that wild? Is it that uncommon? I came an odd quote in the article, uh, the New York Times article. Quote, if we uncover any criminal activity, we will refer it to the Manhattan District Attorney. At this point in time, we're moving forward again with civil enforcement, end quote. So it's not criminal yet, <laughs> which you know, implies the question, what what do we consider a crime in society? Many people notice that after the 2008 crash, only one person got any jail time, even so, so much money was stolen. Time and time again, embezzlement and fraud are not tried as crimes, but, you know, in civil uh, as civil infractions. Even though on the books, embezzlement and larceny have similar sentencing, we all know that Even with mass incarceration, there aren't that many chief financial officers doing time. But also, to be fair, I'm not sure how many chief financial officers exist. So it's weird because it seems like such an extravagant, wild story. Private jets, yachts, fancy gifts. But in a very sad way, it's kind of an ordinary story. So that's that's my little essay 
on the NRA and this piece. They're seeking to strip it of its nonprofit status because, you know, there's certain things you're not allowed to do in nonprofits, like, you know, waste the money on stuff that doesn't have to do with the cause. And and that's what they're that's what they're doing. Has this been big news? Did you all hear of it? I did. I did too. Uh, Definitely. Ooh, I actually was so annoyed because I was, you know, seeing a bunch of articles about it. And there was so most of them are like New York Attorney General Letitia James has a lawsuit against the NRA, whatever. And one of them had that uh that headline but didn't say that she was the attorney general. So it just said New York Attorney General files a lawsuit against the NRA and it had a picture of what's his name, Wayne there like making it look like the new york attorney general is an old white guy and i was like get out of town that is not mm. who is the attorney general please have a picture of her when you're if you're gonna put that headline you know like fascinating but anyway i yeah she's she's a yeah mess. yeah that's awesome and also bad journalism yes, sort of but um, I, I don't even remember i don't remember the source so i can't even yeah. shade anyone but <laughs> Um, yeah, what's interesting is I was reading about how the reason that New York has the power to shut down the NRA is because the NRA is legally like based in, I guess, the charters founded yeah. in the New York State. 148 oh. years ago. Yeah. Like back when it was just like, yeah, the NRA, like when it was founded, was just like an organization to teach people how to shoot guns well. Like it wasn't like oh, politically... Wow. Yeah, it wasn't political, like a political organization at all. And then it became this whole like Second Amendment, like, you know, every time there's a mass shooting just coming out and being like, so what, you know, like, that's a much more modern thing. And the fact that it's tied up with a lot of money shocks, no- hopefully no one, because um, that's what like um, the NRA is all about money backing political candidates, um, clearly embezzlement in some ways. I don't know if that's the legal term of what's going on, but it sounds like it. Uh, wild times dang yeah certainly i heard i, I wonder if you all observed this um i saw on like facebook a friend posted this thing and he was like are you kidding me new york you're doing this now you're just gonna give like trump something to complain about and then i saw like a couple other people kind of have that shade to it where like we have to think about everything in this just like every four years winner takes all election thing <laughs> did, did you any of you see that reflected i haven't but my dad lo- like always talks about how there's the swing vote like not and not in that sense it's the, the change vote i'm sorry he doesn't call it the swing vote it's like ev- it's historically like that's what happens so it'll be the president is in and gets all the support for his party or well, only his party at this point <laughs> no girls um and then four years later there'll be a, a change in congress because people are sick of this administration and wants change and then you know so that's that's a very common story actually um but or like politically historically accurate um or whatever (laughs) i don't know what i'm saying but um yeah i mean it is interesting that it's it is happening so close to the election and it does feel like i think trump said something you know it is it on some level it is concerning that it feels like it would give trump some fuel yeah, in the fire, he but did something like saying like radical, the radical left. And I'm like, yo, if the ra- <laughs> I mean, the radical left, any left is against like massively wealthy people stealing nonprofit money to like buy yachts, you know, like that's not, you know, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like. What's up? 
Go ahead, Teresa. Sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> uh, I was, I was gonna just going to say, say I, um, I just. Oh Guys, come on. <laughs> Good. How about, how about Sarah and then Teresa takes us to our next music break? That's fine. Go ahead, Sarah. I think there's a cool. lag or something. <laughs> I, I think there's a lag on my mic, so I'm sorry. Um, I don't even – I was just going to say I think it's like a lot of people – or like Fox News is saying the same thing that Matt was just saying, like it might be a stupid mistake because like all of the people with that want their guns are just going to be energized to vote for Trump. But like those people were going to be energized anyway. Like, I don't know if that's like an amazing, I, I don't know that it's going to backfire that hard. Those people were yeah. already going to vote for Trump, you know? I love that. Like, like they're coming for a gun swing and their yachts. <laughs> Exactly. I think I think that's a good point. And they are energized. That's what we're seeing. That's the opposition we're seeing in a lot of other places. I'm just glad that Tish is and I say Tish because she goes to my church and I know her. I'm saying like, you know, she's not like as powerful woman. Oh, my God. Yeah, she goes to my church. um, And she's always been very vocal, um, far as I know, you know, but I'm just glad she's actually doing the work like she's actually uh, an elected poli- uh, elected politician that is using her power the way it needs to be, you know, especially in this moment when there's so many different things and we have this lens on our elected leaders and how they move New York with, you know, Cuomo doing all of this directed for the rest of the country. I'm just happy that somebody is still actually putting in the work that needs to be done. Um, and we can, we can say, you know, that she, we can hold her accountable you know, because these are the things that should have been happening all along. And bringing this information to the forefront obviously tells us how much we don't know. We don't, we don't, you know, really know the breakdowns of the history of this organization that clearly should have never been a nonprofit and is stealing from, from everyone. So yeah, good job. Good job, AG. (laughs) That's so cool. Next time I have a story where you where you know one of the main players, feel free to interrupt. Hey, you know, I'm I'm just a little person on the totem pole in this life. Emily knows all the celebs. <laughs> I'm but, I'm starstruck. She's cool. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. So we're gonna go into our next music break. This is "Boomin" by Tiana Taylor, featuring Missy Elliott and Future. We'll be right back. And I Boom like an 808, making circles like a figure eight. Feels good from head to toe. Here we go. Boom like an 808. Making circles like a figure eight. Yeah, you know what you mean to me. Yeah. Feels good from head to toe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Now all of me, I won't decline. Tell me what you want, what you got in mind. Oh, baby, slow it down. Let me take my time. Oh, I'm gonna turn around and let you see this ass wine. Yeah, I can make it vibrate. Yeah. Can you make my legs shake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can make it vibrate. I can make it rotate. When I drop this like a needle, wait, let's go. Boom like a needle. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I have the world news story today. So this is just um, really an update. I've gathered this information from NPR, the New York Times, and CNN. Um, And we're just going to talk briefly about what's happening in Beirut. So a pair of explosions struck the city of Beirut early on Tuesday evening, killing at least 154 people, wounding more than 5,000 and causing widespread damage. Over 1,000 people have been hospitalized and 120 are still in critical condition as of Friday, according to Lebanon's health minister, Hamad Hassan. The second blast sent a billowing reddish plume high above the city's port and created a shockwave that shattered glass for miles. And that is some of the video that we've all been seeing this week. Uh, Despite a huge search operation, dozens are still missing in the city's capital. The blast occurred at the port of Beirut, near the north part of the city. The port has long been critical link to the country's supply chain for goods, including food and medicine, and it handles 60% of the country's overall imports. Many countries are sending emergency supplies and workers to Lebanon. On Thursday, aid-carrying planes came from Tunisia, Italy, Russia, and Morocco, and many other governments have pledged to help out. Uh, The UN has now claimed this a large humanitarian crisis. Nearly 80,000 children are currently being displaced, according to UNICEF. The blast also damaged 12 healthcare facilities, and it also... Um, destroyed 17 containers filled with hundreds of thousands of PPE. So masks, gowns, gloves, and other personal protection equipment um, have now been jeopardized and not available to the people of Beirut. Some of Beirut's residents, angered by their city's seeming negligence, um, they led to the street to protest on Thursday to demand reform. Near Parliament, Lebanese security forces fired tear gas as they clashed with the anti-government protesters. Um, An investigation is underway to find out the exact trigger of the explosion. Lebanon's Supreme Defense Council said those responsible would face maximum punishment. Judge Fadi Akiki, a government representative of the military court, said that more than 18 people have been questioned so far, including port and custom officials. Authorities have now detained 16 people as a part of the urgent investigation. The World Health Organization said they were bringing a replacement of personal protection equipment um, from Dubai, and hopefully they are working to funnel in all of the support that is coming in from the rest of the international community. So there is definitely much more to come on this story. Um, I know there was a lot of bogus stories and um fixed videos that had surfaced on YouTube and have been traveling through social media. Uh, One of them that I seen today said that there were missiles right before the blast, that people were trying to like break down the video. And um, there's been a lot of said, I know um, President Trump at one point had said it was an attack. So there's a lot of misleading news about the cause and, you know, what's happening there. But I definitely think that uh, this story is going to keep evolving um, as the days go go on. Um, And we will have more on this in the coming weeks, but definitely uh, you can support them. There are a lot of different organizations collecting money for the people of Beirut. But honestly, at this point, I think they just need a lot of positive energy prayers and just, yeah, just real consideration and understanding. I can't even imagine being in the middle of destruction like what we've seen on some of these videos um, in the middle of this pandemic. It's absolutely awful. So I hate to kill you guys with bad news, but there is more mm-hmm. coming no, thank up. Thank you. Because... We needed the update. We needed the update. 
yeah, I mean, things are things are updating by the moment. So we will definitely have more in a discussion about what this means um, in regards to the entire world and the international community. But yeah, prayers up for the people in Beirut. All right. Uh, Teresa? Yes, I'm here. Oh, sorry. You were just kind of cutting in and out. Okay. I can hear. Um, okay. But anyway, yeah, it's, 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 an, it's a very uh, depressing story. There was a, a piece in the New York Times, I think, where they actually found the boat that had delivered the stuff, the, um, the chemicals, the aluminum nitrate or whatever it was six yeah. years ago and like the, the just like this shitty boat that had a hole and they moved it across the port and it just like sat there and sank you know and the stuff just sat there wow and and people were petitioning the government trying to get it moved because they knew it's dangerous and that's the tragedy of it right it's it's the story of a, a government negligence not doing its job yeah yeah neg- negligence and corruption unfortunately when things like this happen um so like i said there's more to come but definitely be on the lookout for updates to this story. And finally, finally, Emily, give us some good news for today. I'd please. be happy to. Um, yeah, I'm just going to go right in. So this story comes from an August 7th article I found on Tanks Good News by Susan LaMarca titled Marvel Fans Stoked uh, Studio Chose Its First Ever Black Woman Director, Nia DaCosta, to helm Captain Marvel sequel, uh, which is super rad. Um, that's my comment. That's not the title. So um, <laughs> LaMarca commented in her article, uh, DaCosta, quote, takes the reins from co-directors Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who directed the first Captain Marvel, to major box office success. Bowden was the first woman to land Hollywood's highly coveted superhero movie director role with Marvel. Sure, she co-directed alongside a white man just to be safe, uh, but even Marvel can see that it only makes sense to have a woman's perspective at the helm of a female-fronted superhero movie. Their first female-fronted superhero movie. Um, And then... The, the article had a bunch of tweets from people um, expressing their excitement and support. And one from at Mark Bernardin tweeted, uh, it is one thing for black filmmakers to get hired to make studio films with black stars that took long enough to make a reality. But this, this is the next step. This is huge and it is welcome. Uh, yeah. So my short and sweet story, congratulations to Nia DaCosta really exciting and she um she has a horror movie coming out too i think she's the director of the Candyman remake um Ooh. that's coming out yeah <laughs> spooky yeah so support female directors support black directors support both um yeah. cool really exciting that's spooky i wow. watched that movie last night yeah i hadn't ever seen it the original yeah i it's like i don't love like slasher you know flicks, <laughs> but uh, maybe I do like I do like scary movies, but like less gory ones. So I might make an exception. But yeah, <laughs> clean horror. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like mental stuff. We were like mental horror. Uh, no, I get it. Fucks you up for a little while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, awesome. Thank you. That's so exciting. Yeah, cool stuff. Really exciting. And did you guys see the first Captain Marvel? No, I didn't no. see it. Yeah, it was good. One. Yeah, Brie Larson was really good in it. It was fun. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for bringing that story. And hey, Biden, take the hint. Anyway, I just had to say that. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. At Joe Biden, if you're listening. Exactly. What? I love you guys. Oh, for his VP. Yeah. I love you guys. (laughs) Same. Awesome. All right. Well, that does it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. You can catch um, all of our older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, the website, Spotify, or anywhere you can get iTunes podcasts. Be sure to stay um, connected to us and stay tuned for more independent Brooklyn media. For our final track of the day, we are going to give it to Queen Beyonce, guys. The Black is King was incredible. So if you didn't see it, go do yourself a favor. So we're going to play you out with the final track, Find Your Way Back Mellow Remix. This is Beyonce. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Daddy used to take me walking down the street. Daddy used to take my hand, say, follow me. Daddy used to leave me back home all the time. I got big enough to run around, daddy left me outside.